Guts podcast. I'm Candace Berkeley and I'm Jenny Ingram. We're product managers at Carolina Biological. Candace manages preserved materials and microscope slides, and I manage the anatomy and physiology and allied health products. Today's podcast is brought to you by Carolina Biological Supply Company in partnership with the American Association for Anatomy. AAA connects professionals who work in anatomy and advances the understanding of its foundational role in science. We're connecting science, connecting knowledge, and connecting you. Learn more about AAA at anatomy.org or follow AAA on Twitter at anatomy.org. Many of you have probably taken or teach anatomy and physiology, and we want to talk a little bit about that today. So just generally, there is a lot to learn in anatomy and physiology. It's a really rigorous course. It's very difficult. There's tons of material to cover. It's hard for the students, and it's hard for the instructors. We found some statistics that say that anywhere between 30 and 40% of students who take anatomy and physiology either fail or withdraw from the course because of the difficulty and because they struggle just with the material. Yeah, Um, it's crazy. I I know that obviously we've both taken anatomy and phys and Jenny's actually teaching it right now as an adjunct, is that correct? Online. Yeah, so you know, it's a lot of memorization, these students come in and a lot of them aren't prepared. It's a lot of material. It's actually ranked one of the top five hardest courses that a student's going to take during their college career. It is. And the thing is, is it's such a foundational class mm-hmm. for many of these students' career paths. It is. It makes or breaks their career paths. It totally There's does. People who've always wanted to be a doctor or a nurse and they get into A&P1 and they just right. realize that it's not for them. Absolutely. And it's really, really tough when they get into that course, they realize they can't handle the material. And it's like their life implodes sometimes because the stress, it's overwhelming, it's too much. So we really wanted to address the topic of mental health and the stress Mm -hmm. and not just from a student perspective, but also when it comes to instructors too. Then you add COVID on top of it, right? Yes. So last year and even now dealing with the pandemic, we've had a lot going on. Active Minds is an organization out of Washington, D.C., and they did a survey in September of 2020, and they found that 89% of college students said that they are experiencing stress or anxiety as a result of COVID-19. So add that on top of taking AMP and some of those courses having to go out of the classroom. Right. Yeah, when you're used to doing it in person and having the assistance of someone there to help you or doing the labs in person where you're able to experience it. Now you're doing it all online and and you don't have that interaction. It's 89% is a ton of students. That's huge. It's really, really big. And then they also found that one in four said that their depression has significantly increased since COVID on the student. But again, the instructors having to figure out how to adapt their coursework Mm -hmm. and how do you really handle your students and their mental health? Yeah. As instructors, you want your students to be successful. You want them to reach their goals. You want them to do everything they can do and you want to be able to provide that. And it's just, it's hard enough during normal times to be able to help everyone be successful and, and manage the blow for the students who can't. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, you add, add the pandemic and just the change and everything. And it's that much harder as an instructor to help your students be successful and to help guide them through what is already a very difficult course. Yeah. We actually connected with a AAA member, Dr. Edgar Meyer, and he wrote a recent article called The Body Scan, Mindfulness Meets Anatomy. And he's going to talk to us a little bit on the podcast today. We, we're going to do an interview with him and share with you a little bit about mindfulness and how that's had an impact on his students and what mindfulness is and the practice of mindfulness. So enjoy the interview today. I'm excited to talk to him. Yeah, me too. And we're back. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Edgar Meyer, M-A-T, Ph.D. He's the assistant professor at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, the College of Medicine, Neurobiology, and Developmental Science. And he's written an article that we found very interesting and even a little bit calming at this time when everybody's so stressed out by COVID and the pandemic. His article is called The Body Scan, Mindfulness Meets Anatomy. So now we're going to talk to Dr. Meyer. Dr. Meyer, will you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing with mindfulness? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I guess I'll have to start um, really with with my upbringing. I grew up in the rural Mississippi Delta, which is the northwest part of the state of Mississippi. Uh, I grew up on a farm, but I had a, a grandmother, my maternal grandmother was a nurse for over 30 years. And when I was about six, she gave me my first anatomy textbook, uh, my first um, medical textbook. She was trying to, you know, get me to become a doctor. She was trying to plant that seed to incentivize my going to medical school. But little did she know, I would uh, decide to teach anatomy to <laughs> medical students. Um, and so uh, she planted that passion for anatomy within me early on. Um, but, you know, I went on to college. Uh, I went to a small liberal arts college on the pre-med track. But um, I, when I applied to medical school, I didn't get in. So I went to my classics professor uh, because I was a double major in biology and classical studies who told me about an opportunity to teach Latin at a Catholic school. And so this was where I actually learned that I love teaching. So I love teaching so much that I decided, you know what, I'm going to get a master's degree in teaching and I'm going to teach high school. So I went on, I got my master's in teaching. And during that process, because it was an alternative route program, I also taught biology in a public school in the Delta. I realized that teaching high school requires lots of patience, uh, and I could have certainly used my mindfulness skills then, but I realized that if I wanted to make an impact in terms of outreach, uh, especially for underrepresented students, that I could do that from a point of greater influence if I went into higher education. So what I mean by that is if I went into higher education and the biomedical sciences, for instance, uh, I could have a lot more resources whereby I could do continue to do outreach with K-12 groups 
in the hopes of incentivizing that interest in in the health related sciences. So, uh, so after that three year period of teaching in public schools, I realized you know I want to go teach anatomy, but at a higher level. Uh, and so I got my PhD from the. Uh, University of Mississippi Medical Center and the School of Graduate Studies in the Health Sciences uh, within their clinical anatomy program. And it's this great program that blends teaching with anatomy. So it's kind of this nice marriage of the two. And so my research is really educational research, specifically in the anatomical sciences. You know, what are the things that uh, help medical students or dental students or any students that are taking anatomy, what are the things that help them learn anatomy best? Mm -hmm. And right now, over the past decade or more, the field of anatomy has expanded to really focus in on education. It's not very often that we're finding anything new in the human body. (laughs) Every now and then, someone might discover something new But right now, it's more of how do we help students deal with such a copious amount of content? Mm -hmm. Um, And now with time constraints, how do we how do we help them learn it? Well, what are some ways you've found to help students deal with the stress of learning this much content in the time that they have? Um. I started looking into, you know, what are ways that we can help reduce stress in students? One way is humor. I just like, I like to make people laugh. And if you, you know, crack a few jokes, sometimes it sort of, you know, scales down the mood, you know, of (laughs) of the situation. Right. But, But mindfulness is another way to do that. And, um, you know, I started reading a little bit about Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, who pioneered the emergence of mindfulness in the West, in the United States. And he has this really awesome definition for mindfulness. He calls it awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose in the present moment non-judgmentally in the service of self-understanding and wisdom. So we think of mindfulness as just being aware of anything, but mindfulness as a therapeutic technique is awareness on purpose of those feelings, sensations, thoughts that are going on in our own bodies, but doing it with non-judgment and acceptance. So that kind of really encapsulates um, the concept of mindfulness. And it has a number of benefits. The main benefits are that it can help reduce stress and anxiety, which is certainly beneficial for students, especially students who are taking anatomy coursework. And it can induce relaxation in students, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, certainly meaningful. 
me and Jenny were actually talking about how rigorous AMP is and how stressful the course is because the amount of materials and there's a 30 to 40% attrition rate in AMP. And, and some of these students come in with the expectation that they're going to do great because mm -hmm. this is what they want to do. They want to be a doctor. They want to be a nurse. They want to do PT. And then all of a sudden they're hit with all of this material and some quotes that we read, AMP takes over my life. I've never worked so hard in a course. This is one of the hardest courses I've ever taken. So how do you actually implement mindfulness in these courses? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. So at the university where I am currently, at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, we have a mindfulness program that is really overarching. It applies to not only students, but also faculty and staff here. Okay. And so the main goal uh, of our program is to provide opportunities for people to engage in mindfulness. And so one of the ways we do that is we offer noontime sessions that are open to anybody every weekday. Uh, and so there's about eight or nine of us on a team that sort of take turns mm -hmm. and it's just for 30 minutes. But we also teach courses. Uh, so we use Koru Basic courses, which are part of uh, the Center for Koru Mindfulness it's based in Nor uh, Durham, North Carolina, and we just use that particular form. But there are many types of mindfulness programs out there that you can look into. Dr. John Kabat-Zinn uh, started the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program. You know, if you're interested, you can read about that as well. Koru Basic, though, is just an introduction to sort of a hodgepodge of different mindfulness practices that we introduce to the students over four sessions. So each of those sessions is an hour and 15 minutes, and we just sort of give them a nice overview, um, some that are for relaxation, some that are for focus, and you know, the students that take it or the residents, we have also had faculty members take the courses as well, along with students, mm -hmm. you know, the participants in the course find them overall meaningful because not only do they find some relaxation from engaging in the practices, but they really learn the concept of acceptance and tolerance. So, if you're doing mindfulness for the first time, and some of those out there listening will understand, you know, you're sitting in a chair, right, with your back upright, your eyes are closed, and you're just, you're sitting there, and you're focusing in on your breathing, and, you know, what happens? Well, your mind wanders. You start thinking about this, and these feelings of stress might start arising because you've got a test to study for, but what we try to talk about is how that is a natural part of present moment awareness, that in this present moment in time, my mind might flutter this way and that, even though I'm trying to focus on my breathing, and that might be the main focus of the practice, I will still have thoughts and feelings. And so the important thing to remember is to not judge yourself for that. 
that you can just bring your mind back to the breath gently with feelings of non-judgment and compassion for yourself. Mm -hmm. And really how often do we really give ourselves that compassion? We are so used to being our own worst critics that it's very rare that we just offer ourselves compassion. And then the concept of tolerance. So it's important to note that mindfulness is not a cure. And, you know, mindfulness practitioners and teachers do not claim that it is a cure for stress, anxiety, depression, or any sort of chronic illnesses. In fact, we would recommend that if you have those sorts of conditions that you do also seek professional help from psychiatrists or uh, clinical psychologists or therapists. But what mindfulness can do is help you increase your tolerance for stress. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking about the stress related to coursework. If you're in an anatomy course or in an, an anatomy and physiology course, and it's stressful, and you're dealing with, you know, learning all this new terminology and all this novel content that you haven't seen before, you can use these practices to help you notice when you're stressed, mm-hmm. notice those thoughts that cause that stress, And over time, as you continue the practice, tolerating the stress will be a lot easier because if you think about it, is it the course itself, is it the content itself in the course that's causing the stress or is it your thinking about it Mm -hmm. that's causing the stress? Right. And I think for most people, if they really ponder over this, it's the thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, as I mentioned, with these mindfulness practices, the the potential is that uh, any practitioner can grow in being able to tolerate, you know, stress, anxiety that arises from those types of thoughts great information. It is. It sounds like, so rather than getting in your head in a negative way and thinking about things and causing stress, mm-hmm. you're trying to get into your head in a positive way to try to tolerate that stress better. Right. And accept and accepting where you are mm-hmm. and what's happening mm-hmm. and being in that present moment. In your article, you mentioned Headspace and I use Headspace for meditation. And I also have an app called Mindfulness, which is a great app to use if if any of the listeners want to use that too. (laughs) These are great applications that walk you through steps about how to breathe and give you quick tutorials on how to do this. Are there any other suggestions that you have to the listeners of the podcast? If they have students or themselves as instructors, techniques you can share that may help with with the stress? Yeah, sure. So I mentioned Koru mindfulness, which is what we use more frequently uh, with our mindfulness program. They also have an app that you can download on a smart device or your phone. And uh, they allow you to log your thoughts, feelings, sources of gratitude each time you engage in a mindfulness practice. So you can listen to the recording or the guided meditation and then offer a log. And if you're at an institution that does Koru Mindfulness, 
what what generally happens is the institution is paying for the, the license but the student should get access for life to that app wow. some institutions might require a student to pay an initial fee or something like that some institutions just cover it for the students mm-hmm. but the student should have access to that app um, for life after after that and it might be it might vary from institution to institution depending on the agreement that's made but um, that's one option so in my article i mentioned working with the physician assistant students specifically so now there's a national change of name though they are now physician associates uh, so we're going to see programmatic name changes throughout the country where it'll now be physician associate programs. Hmm. But what they did was they implemented the mindfulness program as a mandatory component for those students. Oh, and wow. so, yeah, so it's one of the only programs here at UAMS where that has become a mandatory uh, component. We did do it with the nursing students as well, all of the nursing students, the junior nursing students, and that was a great experience as well. But for this particular occasion with the physician assistant students, we were asked by one of the clinical directors of the program to come in on a given day. They do this weekly, but it was my turn to, you know, come in and sort of facilitate the mindfulness experience on mm-hmm. that particular day. And I chose to do the body scan because I'm an anatomist and I felt like, oh, they're also taking anatomy right now. So what great way to blend some anatomy content with also the mindfulness practice of the body scan. Well, and maybe explain the body scan a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our listeners might not understand the body scan right now. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll explain that. And then also for those of you out there, you know, wanting some other tips on practices to do, uh, you could probably find a script for this online or uh, find recordings on certain apps that use this particular mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the basis of the body scan is instead of focusing only on your breath, you also focus your awareness on sensations in the body. And a term we use for the source of focus is anchor. You're using it as an anchor to anchor yourself into that present moment awareness in that present moment in time. And so sometimes breathing, uh, while it might be a strong anchor for some people, for some people, it might actually be bodily sensations that they're experiencing. For others, it might be words, repeating phrases over and over again in the head. I am breathing in. I am breathing out. And, you know, some people find those type of anchors to help with preventing the the mind from wandering so much. Uh, But with the body scan, what we generally do is you get in a seated position like you normally would, back up straight, or you can, you know, be slightly relaxed a little bit. You don't want to be too stiff. You want it to feel natural. And generally you place your hands parallel to your thighs, 
Sometimes you can clasp them in your lap. It just depends on what's more comfortable for you. I like to close my eyes during the meditation because it roots out all of the visual distractions I might get so that I can really focus on the feelings, the sensations in my body. But some people like to cast their eyes softly downward in a gentle gaze, you know, slightly unfocused on the floor. But the first thing we do is we ask the students or the participants to bring their awareness to the sensations in their feet, especially the sensations where your feet are contacting the floor. And if you're at home and you can remove your socks and shoes, sometimes it's nice to let your feet touch a cold floor or a soft carpet. And then you can really focus on those sensations. And then as we invite participants to focus on those sensations, we ask them to think about what, what sensations might be there. Is there any tingling? Is there any tightness? Or is there really nothing at all? If you're not moving your feet, do you just not really notice the sensations that are there? And then breathing in and breathing out, focusing on the breath, Focusing your attention, your attention on those sensation with, sensations with each in-breath and then releasing the tightness and the tension with each out-breath. We then move up the body gradually, going to the calf muscles, the gastrocnemius muscles, the thighs, quadriceps, hamstrings, then to the abdomen, so the abdominal muscles, the chest. I like to do back as well because a lot of people experience tightness and tension in the back, mm -hmm. especially the erector spiny muscles, and then shoulder and neck, and then finally the head, uh, the head and the face. And again, with each in-breath, you focus attention on the, the sensations in those body parts, those body regions, and then with each out-breath, you release tightness and tension. And then the last part is we ask and invite the participants to scan the body, body scan, uh, from head to toe for any areas where they might be experiencing most that tightness and tension. And, you know, with each in-breath, heighten your awareness on those sensations. And with each out-breath, release tightness and tension in that area. So that's pretty much the gist of the body scan. And the ending of the meditation usually involves something along the lines of when you're ready and only when you're ready, you're, you may gently open your eyes, bring your awareness back and proceed through the rest of your day's activities with this same level of awareness. Because, you know, mindfulness doesn't have to be solely confined to the mindfulness practice. You can engage in mindfulness in any daily routine, whether you're washing dishes, cooking food, eating a meal. There's a, actually an eating meditation, you know, taking a shower or taking a bath. Really any type of activity that you're engaging in during the day can involve mindfulness. And we have some students that say studying. 
they're they're mindfully engaged in studying, which I guess that's a thing. You're mindfully focused on the act of studying, but you know whether or not that's as relaxing, I don't know. So, <laughs> yeah. so with your physician associate students, are they seeing the benefits of doing these courses and these practices? Yeah, and a lot of the response and comments we receive are that was so relaxing. Sometimes people fall asleep. That's very common. uh, And that's okay. You know, it's okay. Uh, If you wake back up, you can come back into, into the practice. But some say it's a nice moment where they can sort of forget how stressed they are. It's, it's, it's that brief moment in time where you are just being So often we think of ourselves as human doings and not human beings. Mm -hmm. What are the things that I can perform for the sake of accomplishing X, Y, Z on a day-to-day basis? And it's a grind, you know, it grinds you down. And so we really, we're human beings. So we need that time to ourselves where we can just exist. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, as I said, Mindfulness is not a cure, doesn't claim to be a cure for stress, anxiety, depression, and things of that nature, but it can increase your tolerance. But really some of the most meaningful opportunities I've witnessed in terms of sharing is sometimes people get emotional. So, you know, first of all, we have to be real. Trauma is a real thing. We've really all experienced trauma in some way. And so, you know, with mindfulness, we also tell students that sometimes really strong emotions might emerge. And so I've seen and and heard students share very emotional, whether it's a realization or a feeling or a comment. And to me, to me, that's also just as meaningful as reducing stress, anxiety, depression, acquiring feelings of relaxation, mm-hmm. acquiring more increased focus and awareness. Because if one has experienced trauma, we can't change the past trauma that has occurred. And we can't necessarily change the emotions and thoughts and feelings associated with that trauma. Mm -hmm. But what mindfulness can do is it can help one increase the acceptance of it having happened and tolerance for when those emotions and those feelings arise. And they can begin to have less judgment and more compassion for themselves, but also compassion and non-judgment for others. Mm-hmm. When me and Jay were talking earlier, just realizing how students are suffering right now just because of the and instructors alike, but just the survey data that's coming out with students and how COVID in particular has impacted their mental health, it's startling actually. Mm-hmm. There was a CDC report recently that was released in June and 25% of respondents between the age of 18 and 24 had contemplated suicide in the past 30 days. And 25% of the respondents between the age of 18 and 24 had started or increased substance use to cope with pandemic-related stress or emotions. 
And this was all in a CDC report assessing the COVID-19 effects. Mm -hmm. And that blew my mind. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. I mean, 25%, that's a lot. And that age range, I mean, those are, those are college students. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, You know, I'm not naive to the fact that COVID-19 is certainly a, it of course has its physical health risks and it's wreaked its devastation on the global community. Mm-hmm. But I think these reports are important because it shows that, hey, what about the mental component? Mm-hmm. You know, we're still here. You know, those of us that are trying to be socially distanced and that are trying to follow guidelines and, yeah. uh, you know, maintain the safety of ourselves and others around us we still have to think about how we can, you know, maintain our mental health. And, you know, mindfulness is certainly an important way that we can do that. And I certainly think, you know, encouraging more people to be trained in mindfulness so that they could help share mindfulness practices with others is one way to combat this this peak in mental issues that are associated with depression, anxiety, uh, suicidal ideation. But I think, and, you know, this goes back to something that one of my colleagues said, uh, Dr. Tiffany Hewitt is the course director for the PA Gross Anatomy course. And she's, you know, one of the, uh, one of the directors of the program. She mentioned how if we really want to start targeting mental health issues, especially with students, but also with staff and employees, because faculty are certainly burnout themselves and are experiencing depression and anxiety um, themselves, it has to be a systemic institution-wide movement. And we can't sit back and encourage students, hey, do this mindfulness routine or do this mindfulness practice and set aside this time for yourself on a daily basis to do it. If they're already so stressed out and anxious, that, it, that they don't feel like they even have that time mm-hmm. to set aside for themselves. So one way to do it is make it a mandatory component of your program, like what they've done with the PA program. And you as an institution or a program or college center, whatever you are, you put it in the schedule. You actually put it in the schedule for your students, for your faculty and your staff. And you say, this is the time for you to think about your own wellness and well-being. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with her. I think it's, it needs to be a, it needs to be a systemic institution-wide initiative across the country. I mean, really across the world. Mm-hmm. AAA, they did uh, a survey of some of their board members and some of their Mm -hmm. members. And one of the big things that they found um, was something that people were struggling with was mental health. That was like Mm -hmm. one of their number one concerns. And so you mentioned doing like a systemic or institutional program where mindfulness is something that gets focused on. So if there's somebody listening who's working at an institution right now, whose major concern is mental health for themselves, their colleagues, their students, what would you suggest that they can do to kind of get that ball rolling so that they can have something at their school or at their program? 
Yes. Yeah, so having a position of influence obviously is, is certainly beneficial, but even if you don't, uh, most institutions of higher learning have a faculty senate or an academic senate that is composed of faculty members. Mm-hmm. And so you can approach your president or chair of your faculty or academic senate or perhaps some other executive officer that you might know. And if you don't know who they are, you can always go to the, your institution's website, do a quick search for faculty senate, academic senate. And a lot of times you'll come to a web page with their contact information. And most of these executive officers, I'm going to say it at many institutions, many of these executive officers will have some type of access or interaction with administrative officials. Mm-hmm. So at my institution, for instance, I'm currently the active academic Senate president. Dr. Tiffany Hewitt is the past academic president. Okay. So we do have contact with our provost and we get to meet with her once a month. But for some, it might be the president of the institution, Mm -hmm. the chancellor, the vice chancellor, whoever that is. I think this is a a great opportunity to bring up this concept of mindfulness or even just the topic of mental health in general. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, uh, you know, set aside, setting aside that systemic institution wide time and space for mental health, wellness and well-being. Our provost is certainly knowledgeable of our mindfulness program and is very supportive of it. But, you know, I think the next steps might be to move toward protected time and the schedules of faculty and staff for wellness. Mm -hmm. And some managers are already doing this. They are actually requesting that their staff include that in their daily routine and will actually follow up with them if they notice that they're not using that time they'll be like well are you using your wellness time yeah so if someone wanted more information about your program because they want to implement it at their institution and kind of wanted to prepare like Denny was saying if they wanted to contact you how would they do that you can contact me by email a little heads up, I am changing institutions for a new position that does a lot of one-on-one student advising, which I'm, I'm really excited about. And I will have the opportunity to implement a mindfulness program, perhaps, uh, at a new institution. So probably the best bet would be to give my personal email address, which is my first and last name. E-D-G-A-R-M-E-Y-E-R. The number is 262 at gmail.com. But in terms of, you know, learning about the wellness program, if you type in mindfulness.uams.edu, that will take you to the mindfulness program webpage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that'll be great for our listeners. Yeah, and I think you're right as far as like timing. I think now is a really good time. I know my students, my online students, I had twice as many requests for grade changes 
And the reason being mental health issues, outpatient depression services, uh, like you said, suicidal ideations, I mean, all kinds of things. Twice as many students who were requesting grade changes or incompletes than I did a couple of years ago in an in-person class. So I know that the academic departments, the, the admissions departments, everybody is seeing that kind of thing coming through. So I think now is definitely the time when it's on everybody's mind, it's at the tip of everybody's tongue, mental health is very obviously an issue with students and instructors at this point. Yeah, and we are certainly seeing, not not really just specifically at our institution, but uh, really across the country, rematriculation mm-hmm. rates uh, where students either failed and now are, you know, repeating. We're seeing a lot more students that are, that are having to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think certainly all those thoughts and, and thinking about the stress of coursework and COVID, trying to deal and live in a world where we're dealing with a global pandemic. I think, you know, certainly all of that is, is, a, is the culprit, the thing to blame in this situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for, you were our first interview on our very first podcast and it was wonderful. Thank you for all the information about mindfulness. I will continue my practice of mindfulness. I find it extremely helpful with dealing with my stress levels and I hope all of our listeners will start implementing it and hopefully suggest it to their students if they have students that are struggling. Yeah, I'm considering suggesting it to our director. Yeah, maybe we can get (laughs) it aside some time for mindfulness for us too. Yeah, (laughs) but thank you so much for the information and we appreciate you, you coming on to the It Takes Guts podcast. Yeah, no problem. And thank you so much for having me. And I hope you and all those listening will stay well and stay mindful. For almost 100 years, Carolina has provided world-class support for science education, including anatomy and physiology. From preserved specimens to anatomical models, Carolina is there for the instructors who have the guts to teach AMP. For more information, visit carolina.com anatomy. now for AMP and entertainment. So Grey's Anatomy is still on the air. Holy moly. (laughs) Yeah, I was a loyal follower starting my freshman year of college, 100%, and then kind of fell off the wagon. Uh, But Grey's Anatomy is premiering its 18th season at the end of September on the 30th at 9 p.m. Eastern on ABC. So if you are still following Grey's Anatomy, Holy moly. 18th season comes out. If you're not, you could jump back on and see who's new, who's gone, who's back. I was going to say, <laughs> I wonder if they still have all the original characters. Surely not. Oh, Surely no. like they have died and come back to life and all yes. of that stuff like a soap opera. I right? think, yeah. I think that the last time I took a, a poll on who was there. There were about two. Is Meredith still there? Like, she, yes. Okay. To the best of my knowledge, okay. Meredith Gray is still okay. is still there. Okay. Gotcha. But she may be the only one. <laughs> okay. 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 That makes sense. So I don't watch Grey's Anatomy anymore, but I know I do know that all the seasons or most of the seasons are on Netflix that you can watch. Mm-hmm. But if you 
have Netflix. Anyone to watch something else that's really good relating to anatomy? I just watched a really good documentary. Mm-hmm. It is called The Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez. And if you guys aren't familiar with Aaron Hernandez, he was a tight end on the Patriots mm-hmm. in like 2010, I believe, 2011 season. He won, he won a Super Bowl with them. Mm-hmm. He was a fantastic football player. Um, he was arrested for murder. Mm-hmm. If you remember the famous shot of him with his hands behind his back with a white t-shirt over mm-hmm. his arms, that was Aaron Fernandez. Um, he was convicted of murder, tried for two additional murders, ended up committing suicide in jail. They looked at his brain mm-hmm. and the documentary actually documents the severe CTE that he has, which Mm -hmm. is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the degenerative brain disease, and has been found in more than a hundred NFL players, usually coming from series of concussions over Mm -hmm. the years and is marked by problems controlling aggression Mm -hmm. and impulses and can lead to dementia as well as mood swings and things like that. But you can actually see the anatomy of what his brain looks like, and it's astounding. So I would highly suggest the documentary. It's only a three-part series. They're about an hour each, but it's wonderful. That is A&P in Entertainment. All opinions expressed on the It Takes Guts podcast are well-reasoned and insightful and for entertainment purposes only. This podcast features information protected by the fair use guidelines of Section 107 of the Copyright Act, all rights reserved to the copyright owners, Carolina Biological, and the American Association for Anatomy. Thanks for joining us. We hope that you'll have the guts to tune in next time.